you know, again, we're always continually refining what it is we're doing, trying to become better at our craft. Hi, you're listening to Ready to Scale, the second season of That Really Happened. This season is focused on APS of real estate, asset, process, and strategy. Each guest on the show will reveal the assets they invest in and why they chose to do so. From multifamily to industrial, self-storage, mobile home parks, and more. Then, they'll uncover the processes, tools, and systems they've used to build multi-million dollar businesses. And finally, they'll uncover new, unique, and exciting strategies to invest in real estate. From co-working to buy and hold, fix and flips, co-living, and much, much more. Now let's get the show started. Hey guys, welcome to Ready to Scale. I'm Ellie Perlman, your host broadcasting from sunny California. When I'm not behind the mic, I buy multifamily properties with passive investors who partner with me on my deals. So this month, I'm giving away a document called Breaking Down the LOI, which will walk you through the different segments of a letter of intent, which is the non-binding document you send a seller with your offer to purchase their property. You can find the document at www.elliperlman.com slash resources. So again, it's elliperlman.com slash resources. If you enjoy the podcast, it would be great if you can go on iTunes and give us a rating and subscribe to the show. That would mean a lot to me and my team. All right, so let's get to it. My guest today is Kevin Bob. So Kevin is a Florida-based real estate investor with over 16 years of experience. He's the podcast host of Real Estate Investing for Cashflow and a serial entrepreneur with over 40 million of real estate transactions under his belt. Kevin has been involved with apartment buildings, single-family homes, office buildings, raw land, condos, and mobile home parks, which is what we're going to talk about today. Kevin is also passionate about giving back and is the founder of several charitable organizations. So without further ado, I want to welcome Kevin to the show. Hey, Kevin. Hey, Ellie. Thanks for having me. And I I think I need to update my bio. I think about 20 years now. I think you might have an old version, but either way, it is what it is. That's probably (laughs) probably my fault. (laughs) So, All right. Well, can you tell us a little bit about your background and how you started in real estate? So now it's not 16 years, it's 20 20. years. I'm on 20. Yeah. yeah. Back in 2000, I bought my very, very first property. So... A long, long time ago. <laughs> to, to give you an idea of what, where I started, I was in, in school at the time. I was a freshman at a community college and didn't really know what I wanted to do when I grew up. And I just I got incredibly lucky by meeting an individual by the name of David. He is about 20 or some odd years older than I. I met him through a girl I was dating and he happened to be dating her, her mother, which is kind of a funny story. But anyway, oh, wow. I befriended David and he was a local real estate investor and kind of introduced me to what it was he did, which was he bought and held a single family and small multifamily properties in Pennsylvania where I grew up. And I just, I thought it was intriguing. And I saw his lifestyle seemed very different than how I grew up and seemed to have a lot of flexibility, drove a really nice car, dressed really nice, and just seemed to have a lot of flexibility and, and, and just freedom in his life. And he ultimately invited me to a three-day boot camp down in Philadelphia. I accepted, had no idea what I was about to get into, but he had paid for it. It was already paid for and couldn't pass it up because again, if that meant that was going to put me on a path to where he was and what he was doing, then I wanted to be involved in it. And that's that's really what played out, Ellie. I went to that boot camp, you know, learned a little bit about what it was he did, was very overwhelmed when I left there and 
essentially came back and asked him, you know, David, what can I do to help you in your business? Like, I, I would love to learn more. I don't even know where to start. Even after the three-day bootcamp, I don't know where to start. Is there anything I can do with you to help you make your day easier, to help facilitate more deals on your behalf? Whatever it is, let me know and, and I will do it, you know, essentially free of charge. I'm not asking for anything in return other than to be around you more often. He accepted. We became really close friends. When I wasn't tending bar in the evenings, or you know, going to class during the day, I was either in his office, out in the field with him. I was doing whatever he needed me to do on his behalf. What did you do, especially when you know you didn't have any experience or knowledge? So how were you able to bring some value to him? Yeah, that's it. I mean, he gave me a lot of like general admin tasks. I mean, you know, he would as far as like, okay, I've got to get these five leases out to these you know addresses. Can you go take them for me? Little things like that that didn't really take much more than a you know a, a somewhat skilled monkey to do it, right? And so and I gradually, as I was around him, I got to learn a little bit more about you know how he spoke to contractors, how he spoke to residents, how he filled out his you know his created his leases, you know the legalese behind it. And I continued to study as well while I was working with him. I read as many books as he would let me borrow. Like he had a whole bookshelf and he had back then it was cassette tapes, right? He had a lot of (laughs) programs on cassette tapes. And I just basically, you know, was immersed in everything I could get my hands wrapped around regarding real estate. And and I picked up pretty quickly. So to answer your question, I just, I, I did what an assistant would do, you know, like a low level assistant. And I slowly worked myself into what I guess an exec executive assistant and then learned enough over a period of about 14 months to where I felt I had enough resources I had enough knowledge and comfort and confidence to go out and buy my first property myself. And that's what I did. So about 14 months in, I bought my very first single family property, a really low end property in the inner city of Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, probably a street I would never consider buying one again. It was really rough and scary and kind of in a war zone, but I made money on it and continued on from that path, bought more property, flipped a lot of them initially just because I needed the capital. I was a bartender, literally going to school. So I had like $7,000 in my savings when I bought that first property and it depleted every bit of it. So I couldn't hold on to it like he was doing. That, that wasn't really an option for me to hold on for cash flow. And so really what my model turned into was, you know, flip three to five properties, you know, wholesale them and then buy one to keep it. Flip three to five, buy one and keep it, you know, just so I could start creating more residual income. And I just followed his model. That progressed into something much greater over the years and acquired hundreds of single family properties, quite a substantial portfolio, rental portfolio. I got into multifamily many years back, started buying multifamily properties. And fast forward to today, for the past, I guess about seven years now, we've been solely focused on mobile home parks. So it's been a long path. 2008 through 2011 was a very challenging time. Got hit really hard, took a couple of years to recover. And mobile home parks has kind of been like the saving grace since that point in time here moving forward. Got it. Were you investing in mobile home parks back in 2008 or, or only after the crash? Uh, only after. Yeah, only after. We bought our first mobile home park in 2012. So it was only basically when the market turned, I had hundreds of single family and then also about 500 multifamily doors. And I had a few other miscellaneous commercial like office property and things like that. No, nothing major. So most of it was residential real estate. And really the single family is kind of what brought a lot of my business crashing down. It was just a very inefficient model. We were you know spread out amongst multiple different counties here in Southwest Florida. And it just, it wasn't a true cash flow game, especially after some, you know, uh, hurricanes hit down here. We had a lot of increased insurance expenses. Taxes are fairly high here in Florida. And it's just, it, it was an inefficient model. And I knew, I started knowing better as I got into multifamily. And I wish I would have made the decision sooner to sell off the single family stuff and just really go, you know, all in on, uh, on multifamily back then. Because the multifamily stuff I owned, I seem to have just accumulated 
you know, about 480 doors without putting much effort into it. However, I worked my butt off to acquire the single family rental portfolio that didn't do near or perform as nearly as well as the, uh, the multifamily stuff did. So, you know, you live and you learn, you look back at your mistakes and just vow to never make those same mistakes again. <laughs> oh yeah. Otherwise, you know, I think if you're not learning from your mistakes, then it's basically for nothing. It, there's yeah. no nothing if you don't learn from it. So I really want to focus, you know, on mobile home parks, which is mm -hmm. what you do today. Let's talk about the asset, you know, part of your business. Let's start with a very basic question. What are mobile home parks? Because I know there's some misconceptions about what they are. There's some, you know, other classes of real estate that are kind of close to mobile home parks. But when you say I invest, I buy mobile home parks, what are they exactly? Yeah. So a, I guess the true definition of a mobile home park is any one parcel of land that has more than two mobile homes sitting on it. Like that's the real definition. However, you know, majority of our mobile home parks have, you know, 30, 50, 100, 200 plus mobile home units sitting on them. And so being the owner of the actual park itself, we own the entirety of the property and we own all the infrastructure such as water lines, sewer lines, if there's you know private utilities like treatment systems and well systems, what have you. But we own all the infrastructure of that land and that land has individual lots, uh, lots in which have individual water sewer hookups, electrical hookups. And basically those that own the mobile home rent the dirt below that mobile home from us. Think of it as a parking lot. They basically pay us to park their mobile home on that piece of dirt and live within our community or our neighborhood. And mobile home, the, the, you know, the word mobile is kind of deceiving because they're not very mobile. Like 98% of the mobile homes that leave the factory where they're, where they're assembled and go into a mobile home community, 98% of them never leave that mobile home community because it's a very costly process to get them there. It's a very costly process to, to actually set them up. They get tied down and anchored into the ground. And so they very rarely ever leave once they're set up. Got it. So you basically you own the the land and the infrastructure and the tenants they own the they own the, unit. The, the unit. But even That's though correct. it's called mobile, it's not really mobile. Most of them stay in place. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they they do move and but not so often. I think of so we own about uh, just shy of two thousand lots right now at this point in time, and of the probably. 35 plus communities that I've owned over the time I've been doing this, maybe I could count on two hands, just maybe of the number of homes that actually moved out of our communities, meaning like they left that lot and they went somewhere else. And most of the time, the reason why that happens in our space is that, you know, maybe they inherited a piece of land on the outskirts of town where they can actually move that mobile home to and then sit it down and have their own piece of property versus paying us lot rent. That's about the only time it ever happens where that home leaves the community. But for the most part, they stay there. And just like in a single family home, if, if they want to leave, let's say they get a job transfer or if for whatever reason they, they need to, they want to get out, they need to move. A lot of times they just put the home up for sale like you would a normal single family property. Put it up for sale, another buyer comes in, that buyer assumes the responsibility of paying that lot rent and life goes on, that you know, original person moves on to wherever they're going, but the home stays mm -hmm. put. Got it. And in what areas can you find mobile home parks? Everywhere. <laughs> Everywhere. Except Hawaii of the, of the US. Hawaii is the only state that has zero mobile home parks. But basically, every, every other state in the US uh, has mobile home parks uh, with Florida, Texas, and California being kind of the leaders. You know, they have the, the largest number concentration of mobile home parks, but at practically every state other than Hawaii. Got it. Yeah. There's actually not so far away from where I live in mobile home park 
in Malibu with an amazing view to the water. I know and the I park. think, you know, yeah, yeah these yeah. guys, they have better view than I think 98% of, you know, the, the people who own a house here. There's a lot of celebrities that actually own own mobile homes in there. That, that yeah. That's not a traditional <laughs> mobile home park. You know, the mobile homes in there have been retrofitted, you know, to not, they no longer look like mobile homes. Some of those still sell for a million plus dollars. And yeah, that property is definitely worth more as like, redevelopable land that lives a mobile home park. But good to the family that actually owns that thing. That's a prime piece. Yeah, I know. (laughs) (laughs) They're probably never going to sell. I know. And so my last question about the, you know, about mobile home parks as an asset, as this choosing to invest in that asset class, and you've talked about it a little bit before. So I know you've done a lot of different deals, you know, office, multifamily, and, and also mobile home parks. What are the main benefits of investing in mobile home parks compared to other asset classes? Yeah, yeah, no, that's a great question. You know, we all know that there's a massive demand for affordable housing or workforce housing in this country. I know, Ellie, that's what you do as well. You just happen to be in a, in a slightly different asset class than us. And so we cater to that demographic. I mean, that, that is our niche. And so some of the, the things that, that really intrigued me about mobile home parks when I first kind of learned about them. I always knew what they were, but I never had considered them as an investment. A guy I originally met, Randy, had lunch with him one day. He owned some parks here in, in Florida. I didn't even have an interest in the niche. I was just meeting someone new, you know, just to get, you know, expand my network a little bit. And Randy went on to kind of, he made a bunch of comparisons against multifamily because that's really the route I wanted to rebuild with. I was just going to go that direction. And one of the big things that was intriguing to me is that you know, that statistic of, you know, 98% of the homes that go into a community never leave that community. And what that means is not necessarily low turnover rate per se, but low default rate or delinquency rates or, or vacancy rates. Because whenever someone lives in that home and they, they leave, they continue paying the lot rent until they sell the home and someone else moves in. So you don't have the, the typical down period that might exist with a, a rental unit to where someone moves out, you got maybe a month or two of downtime. You got to make ready that unit and got to advertise it and get someone new in there, right? You might have one or two months of lost revenue. It doesn't, I'm not going to say it doesn't exist in our space, but it's not all that common. So that was a big thing. Another one is just not having to maintain, you know, the mechanicals of, of those mobile homes, you know, the roofs and the plumbing and the electrical, what have you. It's really just our responsibility to maintain the infrastructure itself, which is fairly easy in the grand scheme of things. You know, we're maintaining, you're keeping up the road. So, We've got budget set aside for repairing potholes and doing improvements to that, water and sewer lines, you know, unclogging the lines every once in a while, calling Roto-Rooter to do so. Just basic upkeep to the infrastructure itself and maintaining the community. So that was very attractive to me. Another one was, and this might not be as true today, but when we started buying mobile home parks, they were they were kind of like the redheaded stepchild. You know, there, there were some large public traded companies in our space. There were a, a, maybe a handful of private equity companies, but most of it was a very fragmented batch of investors. Lots of smaller investors like us that owned maybe, you know, one to five or maybe a, f- a few that owned more than that. But, you know, they didn't own a lot of communities. They weren't large professional operators that had consolidated the niche. And so that was attractive because we were buying from mom and pop operators, you know, first or second generations that, that had owned these things for many years. They'd been in the family. And in a lot of cases, they'd never really run it like a real business, right? They, you know, very inefficient operations, expenses higher than normal, payroll higher than normal, a lot rents well below market. Just again, hadn't run it like a real business. And we could see a lot of those inefficiencies and quickly fix them. I mean, very easy things to fix with a little bit of time, energy, and focus. And so that was one of the big intriguing factors was that it was a very fragmented niche. It's still very fragmented today. However, 
last three years, a lot of consolidation has occurred. And I, I don't think it's going to stop. It's only getting greater as time goes on here because there's, there's not much new supply coming onto the market. And that's kind of another one of the big reasons that was intriguing to me. Why is that the case? Yeah, there's a couple of different reasons, really two big reasons. Number one, from a tax standpoint, you know, think of any municipality, number, mobile home parks are horizontal, so they don't go up. And so they take, it takes a lot of land area to build one of these. And from a tax standpoint, you know, just the land and infrastructure itself is really where the tax is coming from. There's personal property tax associated with those, with the mobile homes themselves, just like you pay a registration on the car. Same applies to the mobile home, but the mobile home is a depreciating asset. And so that tax base slowly goes down year after year. And so, Comparing that, you know, that, that same piece of property, if it had a retail shopping center on it or if it had an apartment complex on it, it's much more beneficial for that municipality to approve something along those lines than it would be a mobile home park. And so, and so the other side of that equation would be the not in my backyard syndrome as well. So again, we're the redhead stepchilds. A lot of folks associate mobile home parks with, you know, negative activity, you know, drug, sex, rock yeah, and roll, crime, what have you. It's, yeah. just, it's unfortunate because that's really not the case. You know, we're really no different than multifamily or single family where there's really nice neighborhoods, really rough neighborhoods, and then everything in between. The same thing exists with us. However, the stereotype wouldn't suggest that. And, you know, for that reason, you know, trying to get approval on a piece of property that's around civilization, I can promise you that there's going to be a lot of pushback from not only the municipality, but also the neighboring, you know, community, the people that have to live next to that mobile home park, because all they think is the worst case scenario. And so it's the only asset class that has a diminishing supply. So there are more mobile home parks that actually get redeveloped or just shut down each and every year than what are brought online. In fact, the only things that really get brought online nowadays are very, very high-end, like master-planned communities, like retirement communities, which aren't really affordable housing. That's not workforce housing. This is people that live in, you know, the Northeast that are looking for a, you know, retreat during the wintertime, you know, and they want to come down to a, you know, senior community that has palm trees and swimming pools and activities directors, what have you. That's primarily what gets built nowadays. So anyway, to me that what I equated that to was a barrier to entry, meaning that if we could find the existing mobile home parks that are grandfathered in, in a great market that have these inefficiencies that we could fix and know that we're insulated. I don't have to worry about another buyer coming in, actually buying a vacant piece of land down the road and building another mobile home park. That was not, that's not a concern whatsoever. It just doesn't happen. So those are some of the big reasons that, you know, we decided to at least step and test out the space. That was enough for me to be intrigued to say, hey, let's go buy one. And let's see if we can either prove or disprove like all these great things that, that Randy had suggested of why mobile home parks are so great. So that was back in like in 2011 and we, it took about a year, a little over a year to buy our very first park. Mm -hmm. And I actually think that Sam Zell is buying or looking into mobile home parks, if I'm not mistaken. Oh, they, they're, so, they're one of the largest. ELS is the, they're always the first, or it's Sun, it's Sun Communities and ELS. They're the two behemoths in our space. And they always kind of trade, you know, who's the largest of the two. But yeah, no, he's been buying mobile home parks for many, many years. Many right. years. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I know he was also buying multifamily properties, but I think when it comes to mobile home parks, that's one of his, his big things. And I want to kind of shift and talk about the strategy of, you know, buying mobile home parks. Is your strategy, you know, finding those mobile home parks, buying them in hold, you know, just do execute a, a buy and hold or do you do, mm -hmm. do you try and improve them and, you know, flip them after three, four, five years and sell them 
and then take those proceeds and buy another one? What is your strategy yeah. exactly? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, bottom line is everything that we buy, we buy with the intent of being able to improve it. We see you know, that there's a lot of untapped opportunities in every deal that we purchase. So, I mean, we're value-add investors. Some are heavier lifts than others, but you know, all in all, every single property that we purchase, every park that we've purchased has been a value-add type endeavor. And now everything that we do buy, I'd say the original intent is always to get in and, 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 you know, own it for the long term. you know, like really stabilize it, either recapitalize it, what have you, and actually own it for a very long time and just, you know, enjoy the, the, the appreciation, the cash flow that comes of it. However, as you know, I mean, things change, you know, over the years we've refined our portfolio you know, our criteria that might have existed five years ago for buying as far as the sizes and the markets we're in has shifted over time. And, you know, again, we're always continually refining what it is we're doing, trying to become better at our craft. And so I think we've sold a total of five of our parks over the years. We've got another one that we're selling today that we bought three and a half years ago that if you'd asked me three and a half years ago, would we be selling it? I wouldn't have said no, but I, I wouldn't have known, you know, exactly what the long-term plan was with that particular property. However, everything's for sale at the right price, right? And there's certain points, you know, you know, that we've got to not only consider ourselves, but also our investors, you know, is, is it the right thing to do for everyone involved to sell this particular asset? We do it in a fund structure. And so it's a little different. We've got, for example, in our second fund, we recently closed out, we've got nine total assets within that fund. And so, you know, it's not just looked at as an individual park strategy. It's looked at, look at that as an entire fund strategy. Like what is the best for the entirety of that fund? So a little bit different than doing like, you know, deal off syndications, you know, one deal at a time to where like you're only focused on that one deal. And so we've got to make decisions, not just for on the deal side of things, but, you know, for the entirety of that fund and what it's going to do for the longevity of that fund. You know, to get back to, you know, one of your other questions, like, do we, you know, redeploy that capital and buy other investments? You know, we just did a big refinance on two properties we have up in Maryland. We ended up giving back about 25% of the original capital to our investors. And then we're actually redeploying that remaining capital into a, a few other opportunities. So, you know, it, it really depends. And it just really depends on that particular situation and what the, you know, what makes the most sense at that given point in time. But really, we're long-term cash flow investors. I mean, I'll, I'll put it to you that way. All of our investors, they know coming in with us that we're not going to say the three to five year mark, although we might sell something in a three to five year mark. But really, if you're going to come in with us, you should really be thinking longer term, like seven to 10 years and possibly even longer than that. And so if you think that that might not be a potential fit for you and where you're at with you know your investments and where your money needs to be, then we're probably not a good fit because we, we really have a long-term horizon and we want to be in this business a long time. And we also know that they're not making more parks, right? So they're not making more of these things. And so every time we sell one, the chances of finding another one at a great value gets thinner yeah, and thinner. Not so. Yeah. Yeah. Unlike multifamily properties, which, you know, there are more and more of them, you know, yeah. in certain markets, which we're, we're trying to avoid, but there's definitely not a shortage of properties to purchase. Right. There's, there's always going to be, you know, some deal that, that you can purchase. They can and you've buy. always got new supply, right? Like yeah. well, multifamily will never stop getting built. And so there's always yeah. new supply. That supply... 10, 15 years now, ages, and you got new supply coming mm -hmm. in at the same exactly. time. It, it, there's a major recycle factor that happens in the multifamily space, which is great. It doesn't happen in our space, though, unfortunately. So we've kind of, we kind of have like a limited runway. And I've seen it, there's been a significant change over the past, definitely over the past five years, but very prominent change over the last two years as far as difficulty in finding deals and really just due to the sheer competition. Lots of private Same equity here, in yeah. our space now, mm -hmm. you know, very low cost mm -hmm. of capital, very hard to compete 
against some of those larger players. But, you know, there's always deals. As you said, there's always deals. You just got to work a little harder than the next person to find them. That's actually a good segue to our last part of the interview about the process. When you're looking at, and you talked a little bit about earlier about trying to fix those inefficiencies and in the parts that you're purchasing, what's the process that you have in place when you're buying or looking into purchasing a mobile home park and kind of assessing what inefficiencies are there and, and how you can actually fix them? Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's a great question. I mean, as with you, probably Ellie, once you've looked at a thousand P&Ls, you've actually got in and you've operated communities and you've been on the ground floor, it just becomes second nature to you, right? You, you, like you can, you can view the inefficiencies. So I can, I can look at a hundred space park and I can quickly look at whatever the water billing formula is for that municipality. And I can quickly determine if there's excess usage being had across the board in that park, meaning like there's loss somewhere because, you know, the average unit has 2.5 people living in it and I know what the usage should be and I can very quickly calculate what the average bill should be. And I can look at the P&L and know that there's a 20% or 30% variance or meaning that there's underground water leaks. There's either people are not collecting the, you know, the water pavement from, there's something going on there. And I know that it's not rocket science to fix. It's either an infrastructure problem or it's a collection problem. One of those two. And I know I can quickly fix that. Both of them are easy fixes. It just takes some time and energy and resources to do it. You know, another big one would be just, you know, even payroll. I found, I find it very common that, you know, in our space, it's a little different than multifamily where you know, the norm is we have a, a resident manager, community manager that either lives or lives close by to our community, but they kind of handle the day to day. And then we might have a regional that oversees these individual community managers. When a lot of these mom and pops are running these parks, a lot of times they over-exaggerate what it really takes to run these communities efficiently. They're not, again, they're not business people. So they're, a lot of times I see very, very many inefficiencies just with their general day-to-day operations. And so their payroll might be two to three times the amount of what it realistically could be with some competent people in place running the day-to-day operations. So you know, recently we bought a park that had a $140,000 payroll and very quickly cut it down to about $36,000 a year payroll because there was four people that literally were doing nothing, just sitting around That's kind of milking paychecks. Yeah. Yeah. And it's just yeah. a lot of it comes down to, you know, oh, we got to employ our, our cousin Tommy here who can't <laughs> yeah. keep a job for whatever reason. And, you know, and then his <laughs> wife, well, we need something for her to do. And hey, I'm joking now, but like that, that does exist. But most of the yeah. time it's yeah. just, it's lack of business experience. A lot of these families have done something well because they built this thing that's worth millions of dollars now, right? Their friends probably thought they were crazy 50 years ago when they built it. And it's been something that's provided for their family. And you know, a lot of them own them free and clear. So even if they have inefficiencies in their operation, they own them free and clear. They're still taking checks each and every month. And so it actually precludes them from actually trying to dig into the weeds a little bit and find out how they can plug up holes, right? And so we look at it with a completely different set of eyes. And you know, we know that it's it can run more efficiently and we have to run it more efficiently in order for it to make business sense for us. And so those are just some of the, you know, the things like right off out of the gate that we see uh, that's very, fairly common. So, you know, one of the other big ones, actually, this is a huge one. is just keeping up with market rents. The variances that exist in our space, pick any one given market. Let's say a market has 10 mobile home parks in it. And let's say of those 10, you know, six of them are actually nice, like they're nice parks. Like, all six of them are very similar to the next. Let's say each one of those six has a different owner to it. You know, whether it's local or out state, it doesn't matter. I can promise you that there's going to be like three of those parks that they're like 50% of what the market rate is. And you're going to find like 
maybe one or two of those parks is like they're way above what the market, what you perceive the market rate to be. And then there's going to be like the one or two in the middle. It's all over the board. There's no consistency whatsoever. And a lot of that's really due to a lot of these mom and pops. Again, they're in there. They own it free and clear. They become friends with their residents. They stop running it like a business. They start doing favors for Mary and Bob and Joe and all these other people. And oh, well, we're not going to raise rents because we don't want to offend people or get, have people get mad at us. And I see people that have raised rents for 10 or 15 years. So some of the big ones that really attract us to the space and, and things that are fairly easy to fix. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And I really think that when it comes to mobile home parks, you know, all those inefficiencies that you just talked about, they're relatively easy to fix, but you still need to be an expert in that field. It's easy to yeah. fix for you, but not necessarily for anyone who just wants to, you know, obviously buy a mobile home park. You need to know how to look at, you know, how, how to read the utility bills, how to read the market and know which rents are below at or above market. Mm-hmm. So it's easy for you. As you mentioned, it's like a second sure, nature. You see sure. it and all the numbers pop out of, you know, the document, you know exactly what to look for. Well, that was a really, really good conversation about Mobile home parks, Kevin, thank you so much. We have arrived to the lightning round questions. Are you ready? Fire away. All right. Kevin, what's your favorite hobby? Favorite hobby? It's probably a toss up between boating and cycling. So both of them get equal amounts of my free time. (laughs) Very nice. What's the one thing that people don't know about you? One thing that people don't know about me. I love like old school, hardcore rap music. (laughs) Really? (laughs) Yeah, I've got a pretty diverse. I wouldn't have guessed. Yeah, I've got a pretty diverse like taste in music, but like that's the one that like drives my wife crazy and you know shocks a lot of my friends. I listen to country music too, right? So like I'm on both ends of the spectrum. I might be playing country one day, and then I'll throw on some very vulgar, old school rap music, and it and it shocks people. But yep. <laughs> Interesting. Okay, I did see it coming. What do you wish you had known when you first started investing in real estate? I wouldn't change anything that's happened, the good and the bad, but I wish my eyes would have been made, would have been put open to larger deals, right? To, to thinking a little bigger. To me, I was thinking incredibly large, like especially in comparison to my friends and all that, right? So it's all relative, but just really understanding the uh, the mechanics behind you know, efficiencies of operations that exist in like multifamily, whether it be mobile home parks or apartments, a comparison to just owning, you know, single family rentals, they like spread out all amongst a county or multiple counties. Again, I learned it the hard way because I learned very quickly that half of my operation back then was very inefficient with the single family properties and the other half was very efficient. And so if I'd have learned that sooner without having to learn it in school of hard knocks, then I probably would have avoided some mistakes and would have, you know, shifted my focus a lot sooner. Got it. Okay. What's your number one advice to real estate investors who want to scale their business? You know, you can you can cut your teeth and learn things the hard way and make a lot of mistakes. And you know, you're not really growing unless you are making mistakes. However, there's certain mistakes that you know, could and should be avoided. I mean, and and how you avoid them is by getting a you know getting a mentor, aligning yourself with whether it's someone that you're working with, like I did with David, or just you know you get, get to know a number of folks that are in meetup groups or your know, different conferences that happen across the country that are doing exactly what you want to do. But, you know, befriend somebody, learn, you know, find out how you can add value to them in their business and see the inner workings of what it is they're doing, which ultimately, if that's what you want to do, I mean, that is the quickest path to progress and success is actually just literally not reinventing the wheel, just modeling exactly what the successful people are doing. So, I mean, with hands down, I don't know where I'd be if I hadn't met David. I don't even know if I'd be in real estate, but I can tell you that of the folks that I met, 
during that same period of time that I maybe met at like local meetups or the real estate investment clubs uh, by having David, which was kind of like, he was kind of a big deal in the small town I came from. By working with him directly, I, I surpassed a lot of the other guys that were maybe just getting started or buying a property here or there. I surpassed them very quickly because I had David by my side. Mm -hmm. Very important tip. Absolutely. All right. Great. Kevin, where can people find you if they want to get in touch with you? Yeah, you know, two different ways. My main website, kevinbup.com. You can, you know, listen to, I have two different real estate podcasts as well. One's called Real Estate Investing for Cash Flow. It's a commercial real estate investing show. Also, Mobile Home Park Investing Podcast. You can find that on there as well. And then our company website, if someone has an interest in what we do in the mobile home park space, our website, sunrisecapitalinvestors.com. So I'm not too hard to track down, Ellie. You know, between those ways and uh, just getting <laughs> on social media somewhere, I'm sure you could find me. All right, perfect. Kevin, thank you so much for, you know, spending the last 38 minutes of right now of your day. Not maybe the last because yeah. we're <laughs> the middle of the day now, but spending, you know, 40 minutes with me and sharing your knowledge about mobile home parks. I'm definitely smarter compared to how we, we started, the, <laughs> you know, so I really, really would like to, to thank you. And I really appreciate your time. Yeah. Thanks for having me, Ali. It's been a lot of fun. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.